This is Game Changing History with Francis Lund. What happens to a thoroughly heathen warrior-like society when Christianity comes in? Will the heathens embrace it? Will they fight it? Or will Christianity adapt? And what happens when those who used to wage war against the holy white Christ, or Christ as they would come to call him, are all of a sudden expected to follow suit? What happens when they are expected to cast away their statues of Odin and Thor and Freya? What happens when they are no longer allowed to eat the sacred horse meat, when they are no longer allowed to sacrifice animals and humans to honour the gods? How will this shape their entire understanding of the world when they are finally forced to accept the beliefs of the Anglo-Saxons and the Franks? How do you react when you have to be part of the same culture as the foreigners? You know, those who always look down on you. Those who mocked your gods and your way of life. Do you obey? Do you fight back? Do you laugh it off? We are about to find out as the new nation of Norway has gotten its first Christian king. This is the fifth part of this rather epic series on the Viking Age. And um, if you haven't heard the previous episodes before, I recommend you do. Otherwise, I suppose this is as good a place as any to just jump straight in. And in this episode, we are really going to tackle some of the most important game-changing moments of this area. It is when Christianity is starting to sneak in and take over in the Scandinavian home countries, basically putting an end eventually to the Viking Age. But I just want to recap a little bit what has happened so far. Because when we started, we said that the Viking Age depended on two major factors – One is the maritime technology, the Viking longships, you know, they can travel where nobody else could travel, giving the Vikings huge opportunity to raid and settle and trade. And the second element is this aspect of the unique Norse culture and religion, meaning that these people had no qualms about sacking monasteries and churches for for loot. And there's another twist to this perspective that we also discussed, and that is that at the outbreak of the Viking Age, it is quite possible that the Norsemen might actually see Christianity as a form of cultural imperialism. You know, they, um, they, there are some big 
religious clashes right before the outbreak and you have the situation where you have the Saxons in northern Germany, they are sponsored by the Danes and they are in conflict with the Franks and with their mighty Charlemagne culminating in a huge massacre of pagans at a place called Verden. So there is a lot of religious tension there and animosity. And when the Viking longships are being perfected, it is easy for the Vikings to travel from their home countries in Scandinavia to all of Western Europe and inlands into Eastern Europe through river systems and wreak havoc. And it's it's just really hard to defend against for these European kingdoms because the Vikings will be gone before they have time to amass an army. And gradually we have Vikings settling, settling on Orkney, on the Shetlands. They will conquer and rule much of Ireland and northern England. They will break constantly in France, while they in the east will control much of the trade, by having control of these essential river systems. And at the same time, we gradually see how mainland Europe is responding and reacting to the Viking threats. And we also see some changes in the Viking home countries. There is a huge influx of capital there. Massive amounts of silver and slaves have been brought in. And we get gradual formalization of power. We start to see real kingdoms emerge, much like on the European mainland. There are no longer only petty kings and sea kings. We start to see proper medieval kingdoms. And where there was, you know, a bit of unclear identity nationally, we start to see a greater definition of what is Norway, what is Denmark, what is Sweden plus Iceland that is being inhabited and growing as a result of mainly Norwegian immigrants, some fleeing the unification led by Harald Feinheer. And in the east, you see also that these Vikings are assimilating with the Slav population. They are building empires that will be the forerunners of today's Russia and Ukraine. And also, as time goes by in the west we see that the more and more solidified kingdoms in France and England are finding better ways to deal with the Viking threat. They are either accepting the Vikings into society as through the Dane law in England or as in Normandy and France we have the Viking Rollo's handed control of the land under the emperor starting off this feudal system more or less as well as these kingdoms are getting better at fortifying cities and towns and more, most crucially they are at this point starting to manage to build larger bridges and force around the rivers cutting off the Vikings access to, to these important river systems. At the same time, we see nation states, they are emerging in Scandinavia, and it also becomes apparent that the Christian religion is a very handy and powerful tool for monarchs. And after we had Alfred the Great in England managing to stop the great heathen army, more and more Scandinavians are gradually converted and raised in the Christian faith. 
So there are some efforts also for for the European states to try to bring Christianity to the Scandinavian home countries, but most of the time it has failed. Some have often even been killed immediately for trying to bring uh, the, the gospel of Christ to the heathens, but, you know, as time goes on and these nation states are, you know, gaining momentum, so does the need to build alliances and the need for big, big politics start to emerge. And this is the problem that Eric the Bloodaxe is experiencing when he takes over as king of Norway from his father, Harald Feinheer. You know, the old need for the brutal lead-by-example on the battlefield kind of king is really not there anymore. Now what is needed is a leader that can make alliances, that can knit carefully crafted networks of friends and bannermen, and everybody knows that this is not Eric's strong suit. Also Europe is not what it used to be. The hit and run raiding of course has become much more difficult and Norway and other nation states, they need international connections. And, you know, we see this many places. Politics is really taking place of just barbarous raiding. One thing with Christianity is that literacy is really closely connected to Christian institutions. And, of course, literacy and writing, they are handy when you are to make laws. And... Monarchs and rulers are starting to sort of see this. In the Scandinavian home countries, before Christianity, there is no clergy connected to the Norse religion, at least not compared to what you have in Christianity. So there are no people serving as priests or priestess or priestesses on a regular basis. There are several places where blood sacrifices can be carried out, but often they will be done as part of the you know, larger farmsteads, and it will be the leader of the household that will be carrying out the religious ceremonies. There are some shrines and temples, but often these are uh, specifically dedicated buildings around these large farmsteads. And they have writing, of course, in the Old Norse, but in the form of runes, but they are often intended for different purposes rather than writing long texts. They They are intended for... For, for magic and rituals and so forth. So as we are well, well deep into the 900s, the situation is different from what it was when we started at the end of the 700s. While in many ways the Norse religion is starting to perhaps lose a bit of ground, there is, um, you know, there is still not, it hasn't really sunk in in the Scandinavian home countries when it comes to the normal people. Normal people are still pagans. As we remember, part of the deals with the working raiders in continental Europe is that they are often being forced to baptize and to take Christian names. And while many of these Vikings did not bother much with this, and perhaps also view this as a bit of a naive play by their adversaries, the fact is 
that we are getting more and more Viking rulers now converting to Christianity, at least formally. As we mentioned in the previous episode, Harold Fine here, he's the one accredited uniting Norway into one kingdom. Now, he's a pagan, uh, and he probably didn't unite all of Norway, but he did uh, quite a bit of that. And one of Harold's strategies in order to consolidate power was to father a huge amount of children with women from powerful families all across the land. But, you know, he ends up with a very obvious problem, having too many ears. And this is where Alec the Bloodaxe comes into it and he starts killing off half-brothers and he gets his nickname. There are quite a few brothers, though, that he doesn't kill off. Harold Fineham might have had as many as 20. And one of these brothers is a guy named Hawkon. Hawkon, he is an extremely fascinating character. He has a very different background from all the rest because he has been sent to England as a boy to be raised by the English King Athelstan and he will be known as Hawkon Adelstein's foster meaning Hawkon raised by Athelstan. So how on earth has one of Harold Finehear's sons ended up here, you might think, and it's a funny theory that is most probably not true, but it's too good not to at least mention. So here, here it goes. Allegedly Athelstan at one occasion gave Harold Finehear a sword as a gift. Harold accepted, but later on came to regret it, as this was a custom for a vassal to get from their king. So basically, as soon as Harold had touched the sword, rules say he had to accept it, and then there was a ha-ha, now you're my vassal, stupid nor pseudo-king kind of moment. Bit of an insult for Harold... Um, and according to this not very believable legend, Harold a few years later somehow returned the favour by letting his son sit on Athelstan's lap or something before saying something like, ha ha, you touched my son with your lap, now you have to race him, you stupid English king. Yeah, very unlikely true, but more likely it was a political move to have connections with the English court, and Athelstan probably saw this as a pretty good opportunity also. Regardless of how Hawkorn ends up in England, he is, of course, given a Christian upbringing. And it is possible that the religious tensions at this point has has relaxed a little bit from the Viking point of view. It is many generations since the massacre at Verdun, where the Saxons were killed by Charlemagne, and the Vikings at this point have really killed so many Christians and burned so many churches, so perhaps there is a feeling of being even, who knows. At any point, Christianity for the Vikings is no longer a strange, distant custom. They will all have heard about and known about Christ and the Christian religion somehow. And at this point, you also see more and more missionaries coming every now and then. There is a mission also set up in northern Germany in order to to work uh, continuously on on bringing Christianity to Northern Europe. And it's really worth pausing here for just one second and think about Christianity in uh, in this form as a religion because it's very different from the Norse religion, also in the way that spreading the word of God, you know, it's such a huge part of Christianity. 
You don't have that in the Norse religion at all. I mean, you don't get missionaries for Odin. So it's a very different religion in that regard. And us living today, we tend to think that all religion, all religions have this urge to spread around, to, to have missionaries. But I think that Christianity really has an extra superpower in this regard. In the Bible, the resurrected Jesus issued the Great Commission where he is asking his disciples to spread the word of the gospel to all corners of the world, which is, you know, fascinating because you don't have anything like that in Norse mythology. It would be completely unfamiliar and strange to them to think like that about their own religion. You know, it's completely unthinkable for them to set up a mission preaching the tales of Thor and Freya and so forth. In their minds, this is not how religion spreads. In their world, religion spreads through what gods are giving you the best results. So if you sacrifice to Odin, and Odin makes you win a battle, Odin is the best god. Monotheism in general seems strange for people that are used to worship a whole pantheon of gods, because why would you only choose the one god? You get this in very many different cultures that are converted uh, to Christianity or, or Islam. It is often a hard sell in the beginning because there is a, a lot of what we would, in a very analytical way, would call confirmation bias there. Like, I know that Odin is real because I have sacrificed many bulls and horses before battle and Odin has granted me victory almost every time. So what can you give me, right? Salvation from my sins? I don't even know what sin is. Eternal life? Well, you know, I have a hall waiting for me in Valhalla, full of beer and fighting and other fun stuff. So, yeah, you can see why it takes some time for people to convert. And when we, in this episode, is really, we, we're going to get really into how Christianity is spreading in Scandinavia, it's just really important to understand that this is not at all an overnight thing. It's a huge process, even though, you know, in retrospect, it's easy to think that we are looking back, and this is typical with all history, you know, as time passes, we tend to draw straight lines when they, in reality, were blurred and complex and took a long, long time, and the old Norse traditions will prove extremely stubborn. In many places, we actually will find that the two religions are coexisting for a while. Like, you had this one quote from a sailor that said something like, When I am at shore, I worship Christ, but when I'm on the ocean, I pray to Thor. This is quite sort of typical, also in England, that in the northeast is now really a Danish-English-Norwegian hybrid in under the Dane law that accepts Norse customs. You will find graves from this area where people are buried with a hammer of Thor, a really, really, really common amulet that people would wear around their necks, and also you would find Christian crosses. Both these things were, of course, mass-produced and sold. You would most likely, quite easily, could you could buy a hammer of Thor amulet if you went to trading places in and around York, for example, in the 900s. You would even have coinage where you get that bit of both things, a hammer of Thor and a cross. 
And as we mentioned, we will also later on, after the christening, get the famous Norwegian stave churches that long, long after this area are having these very profoundly Viking symbols and aesthetics. And as we've seen, many of these heathens, they are forced to convert as part of peace settlements. And at first the heathens don't care, because for them it's all a sham anyways. It's an easy part of the deal for some of them to take. They continue to make blood sacrifices to the Norse gods and all that. But by having to take part in Christian rituals, wear Christian clothing and so forth, gradually these conversions turns out to actually have a rather big impact. Perhaps cultural appropriation is the right word. It's a kind of silent weapon that the Central Europeans have that the Norsemen basically don't really understand. We saw it in the last episode when the son of Rollo thought his children all of a sudden were too French. And now I'm not really picking sides here, and in one way I'm rather happy that one of the big religions of the world is not one of those that condones the occasional human sacrifice, but if we are looking at these as a war of religion and a war between cultures, it's becoming more and more clear that the Christian faith and the institutions are much more sustainable and powerful over time. The Norse religion, as we said, don't really have a clergy. You would have specially assigned houses, they're called a hof, that would work as shrines and you can sacrifice animals in there and you would, there's a lot of blood. You would splat blood all around the walls, you would splat blood on yourself, you would cook the meat of the animals that you have sacrificed and you would eat it in what was partly a religious ceremony and partly a feast. There would be uh, heaps of beer and mead and, and alcohol. You would have heathen idols there. You would have figurines of Odin and Thor carved out of wood standing around, also being covered in blood. Just really huge amounts of blood. In fact, the ritual itself was called a blut, coming from the word blood. And it's also a verb, to blut. You know, you could say, like, want to come over to my hole from Blue to Bits to Thorlisavo? Kind of thing, you know, you know what I'm getting at. It's kind of interesting just how much blood has to say as a religious thing and religious importance in several different civilizations around the globe. I mean, you get similar obsessions with blood in certain Latin American cultures, of course, completely independent from European paganism. But yeah, it's just interesting. And I think it's fair to say that Christianity is many, many things, but it's also to some extent a reaction and a counter movement to many of these ancient customs that are, you know, very, very different. So at this time, we can say that much has happened since the start of the Viking Age. The world has been brought much closer together by travel, people and cultures mix, and all of a sudden, Norway, the further, furthermost northern home to the Vikings, they are getting their first Christian king, and in fact, he's only really the third king uh, ever in Norway after Harald Finehair and after Eric the Bloodaxe. And this king is this Hawkorn that we talked about, raised by Athelstan, and 
of course, he's not going to be a pagan. I mean, he's born, no, he's not born, but he's raised in England since he was a small kid. So, you know, being a pagan wouldn't fly. And when the situation in Norway turns out to be such that Eidic Bloodaxe, the king that was better at raiding than governing, and his wife Gunnild are starting to become really unpopular. There is murmurs that, you know, there is this guy Hawkorn in England, he's also the son of Harold Finear, and maybe it's time to get a more capable ruler in. And the details around this is not exactly clear, but it seems that King Athelstan of England sends him on his way back to Norway with quite a few ships and men, uh, quite happy to to help sort of get a Christian king on the throne in Norway. It's quite possible that Athelstan would have planned for this all along, you know, to raise one of Harold Finehair's sons as a Christian and send him back to the pagan home countries as soon as possible to convert them and hopefully get more peaceful neighbours up north. At this point, there are plenty of people conspiring in Norway against Attic the Bloodaxe. So Håkon, he arrives in the Trøndelag area, that's geographically more or less in the middle of Norway, and he finds an ally there in a man called Sigurd Håkonsson. He's an earl, I know as a lord, the jarl meaning it's an extra powerful earl. Sigurd is essential for Håkon, because Sigurd gets a pretty sweet deal. Håkon will let him control much of the Trøndelag area, and Sigurd will support Håkon as king of all of Norway. We get all of this from the sagas of Håkon the Good, as he will be known as, and it's written by Snorri Sturluson. As we've mentioned before, he's the Icelandic chieftain and writer, and these sagas are extremely colourful, and it's thanks to Snorri that we have this deep insight into the lineage of Norwegian kings, even though you know, the the accuracy of them sometimes can be disputed. And in telling this story, we will be mostly in Denmark and Norway and not so much in Sweden, unfortunately, because we don't really have a Snorri or Saxogrammaticus writing about Sweden at this time. So, apologies. We will touch upon Sweden a little bit, though. This Sigurd character, he will be Håkon's right-hand man, and even though he himself is deeply rooted in the pagan belief system, he is pragmatic. So he is willing to look between the fingers when it comes to Hawkins' deep Christian fate. And here you might think, I've forgotten something, because, you know, what really does happen to his half-brother? What happens to Adik the Bloodaxe, you know, the, the king when Hawkins arrives? I mean, surely he doesn't just give away the the throne just like that, does he? And, well, according to the saga, that is kind of what he does. It seems like Adek really isn't cut out to be a king, and it kind of seems like he understands this himself, and after trying to summon an army to march north against his half-brother Håkon, that has all these allies all of a sudden in Trendelag, Adek finds that a lot of powerful people basically all over the country have turned their backs at him and basically he just seems to run off. 
you know, just saying screw this and he heads over to the Orkneys where he does a bit of more of what he does best. He goes raiding and then he raids a bit more around Scotland and then eventually he is gifted the rule of the old kingdom of Northumbria by King Athelstan, which is now more of a region of England than a kingdom per se and he will have his main seat in York or Jurvik. Now, this is also clever politics by Athelstan, and it's towards the end of his reign. And um, maybe it's not really fair to mention Athelstan only in this Viking context, because he is really one of the most important English kings alongside Alfred, you know, in general, overall, in history. In fact, when another very funny history podcast that I love called The Rest is History ranked English kings, he came out on top. And he's by many seen as the real first king of a united England. Um, he seems to have been a great builder of relations and and he was a very shrewd politician. So when putting Adic in York, he had a plan to first of all get Adic to stop raiding but also to, to get Adic to fight off other Vikings. And of course, no surprises here, Adic also has to convert as part of the deal. But when Athelstan dies a couple of years later in 939, he is succeeded by his brother Edmund that does not share this sympathy towards the Danes and the Norsemen, and Adic is killed in battle on English soil as I am sure he would have thought a very fitting death. However, the English will over time come to regret being harsh on the Vikings, the Danes particularly. And just to say that we are now gradually starting to see much more difference in identity. As we mentioned, when Norway, Sweden and Denmark are becoming more cemented as nations and cultures that are slightly different with differences in languages and customs. As we will get to the later king with the name Athelred the Unready, um, he will particularly experience that messing around with the Danes. It's not a great idea. And we do have, at this point, a situation where there is a lot of intrigue going on in this triangle that is England, Denmark and Norway. And these histories are at this point, very much intertwined. Eirik Bloodax, he had a wife. She, her name was Gunnhild, and she will not go away. She will continue to play a massive role and take all her vengeful sons with her to Denmark and the court of the Danish king, a certain Gorm the Old. And the Danish kings, they always do have this interest in what is going on in Norway. At certain times, part of what is modern-day Norway has been ruled by the Danes, and they seem to have a sense that they have ownership, or at least Norway is within their sphere of interest. So they are quite happy to take these outcasts in exile. So Gunnhild, Eirik's widow, she's a real, real power broker. She's a woman that will hugely influence politics in these countries, and she is not going to sit idly by while Hawkorn, this Christian brat, is taking control over Norway, as she sees this as her country that she and her sons should rule. Now, just a bit of a cue for your imagination. These people are at 
very different ages when they are entering our story. So while Rollo, as we discussed in the previous uh, episode, is perhaps in his 50s when he really enters the frame, Harold Fine here, on the other hand, is a teenager when he starts off on his campaigns, and likewise, Hawk on the Good is much younger than Adek Bloodaxe, and he's likely a teenager when he comes over from England. He might not be able to grow a beard yet kind of thing. Whereas this Sigurd uh, Earl that he is uh, allied with in Trendlag is much older, imagine a big guy in perhaps his 40s or 50s. So you have... These really, really young kings at first, only kids really, perhaps as young as 15 or 16. So Hawkorn, later to be known as the Good, is as you can imagine a very different ruler from his half-brother with a very different nickname. He will be known to be a king that puts a lot of emphasis on laws and that will ensure times of peace and prosperity in Norway, even though he wasn't actually what you would call a peacemaker. He would, according to the saga, call quite a few people in battle. He would yield his sword, known as Kvan Beats, meaning groin biter or something like that. So he's no peace-loving hippie. He's very much what you would see as a classic Viking king, except that he is Christian. Now, him being Christian is, of course, a bit of a problem, But his subjects, they seem to be willing to accept that he's a little bit of a weirdo, believing in Christ and all, as long as he won't show it down their throats kind of thing. And after all, he's a much better choice than Adik the Bloodaxe, or even his father Harold Fine here, that was a rather ruthless ruler after all. And towards his old age, he he became paranoid and not very easy to be around. So they seem quite content with Hawkon the Good, as long as he doesn't try any Christian monkey business on them. Hawken, though, obviously also think that this is a little bit awkward being a Christian king over a completely heathen pagan country, and it's hard for him just to do nothing about this, so there are bound to be some religious tensions. But Hawken, he is he's quite pragmatic, and he has great advice from Sigurd, Probably he has learned also something about making compromises from Athelstan because he does try to bring the Christian faith to Norway, um, but he is quite clever in the way he does it. And there is, he understands that there just is not a huge deal of interest in it. I mean, he tries to bring in a bishop or two from England and he tells the farmers of the Trendlug region during his session or called the thing, you know, the council where people would get together in the working area to decide things, that he kind of wants them to, to worship Christ, the Son of Mary, and they are not very impressed. According to Snorri, one of the farmers steps forward and says something to the effect that, hey, mate, we do really like you. You know, we think you're a great ruler and lawmaker. Overall, you're a great guy. We are super happy to continue supporting you, but asking us to stop believing in the gods that has worked out so great for us and for our forefathers, you know, that's basically taking it one step too far. And even though we feel that you're a great guy, Hawkorn, this can potentially be a deal breaker. So, 
Sigurd steps in and tells Hawkorn that you don't want to make enemies with these people. And Hawkorn, yeah, okay, he says, yeah, I kind of accept this. And he realised that Rome wasn't built in one day kind of thing. These people are not going to stop with their bloating and their pagan worship and so forth. And this is fine and all. But Hawkorn takes this stand. But we get into some really comical situations here that emerge as this rule goes on because there are certain expectations to a Viking king and some of those expectations are that the king will take part in pagan rituals. Now, Hawkorn being raised in the belief that the Norse gods are demons, you can see that this is a dilemma for him. So, there is first this occasion where he's forced to take part of the Hof, you know, he has to be there, they splat blood all over the place, and he kind of, you know, he tries to avoid doing things, like he has to drink some stuff, and he's rather unwilling, and he ends up doing the, the sign of the cross over the beverage before drinking it, which does not go down well with the other Vikings that says like, Oi mate, what is that Christian BS doing here in our heathen ceremony kind of thing? where Sigurd again is the man that steps in and says, oh no, no, guys, you've got this all wrong. He's not doing the sign of the cross, he's making the sign of Thor's hammer, can't you see? And of course, no one buys this, but Sigurd has, you know, has really high authority in this field, also when it comes to these pagan rituals, so Hawkorn is let off the hook this time around. Unfortunately for Hawkorn, these pagan ceremonies and feasts are recurring events, and he is again put in these positions where the others are trying to force him to do the blood, the blood sacrifice, and then eat horses' meat that they've um, cooked up, or sometimes not cooked up, and it's raw. Sigurd again tries to be an intermediary. You know, he um, the more comical situations emerge, like Sigurd suggests that you know maybe Hawken could just smell it, you know, but not not eat it and so forth, and. Or maybe just put his mouth around it like stuff. And there are a couple of these situations before it ends up with Hawkorn actually being forced to take a bite or two of some raw horse's liver. And he's not too pleased and he wants to wage war against these people after it. But Sigurd again calms him and basically says, Oh, you know these guys, they are hopeless, they're not worth it. And he finally gets Hawkorn away from starting a civil war for being forced into pagan rituals. There is something really interesting about all this that, according to history professor Kenneth W. Hall, it's a little bit typical for Norway, and that is that these uh, kings, they are basically ruling on the basis of consent to a larger degree than in other monarchies. I mean, the king is all-powerful and all that, but people are also expected to be heard, especially through this thing system where they will occasionally gather. And to stop um, supporting a king or to even overthrow a king is not really seen as an act of state treason, as it might be other places. It is a slightly more quote-unquote democratic, and it's uh, you know it's kind of part of the deal. If you can't keep your powerful subjects happy, they will rally around some other guy. And it's not really so that king and country is two sides of the same story. So you can be against the king and still not be a traitor to Norway, if you understand. Hawkorn rules Norway from sometime in the late 930s to sometimes in the 960s. 
And while he is managing to keep order in Norway itself, he is under constant threat from the Danes to the south and Gunhild with her sons in exile. At this point, they are only known as the Eirik sons or the Gunhild sons, um, and they are always conspiring, always. Håkon at one point has to go down to Denmark to settle the score. He wins a couple of big Viking on Viking battles before taking care of some insurrections in Skåne, that's in today's Sweden. But this has also been an area of land that has been under Danish rule and influence several times in history. And if you do think about Håkon the Good as someone, you know, Christian, do good, a king, uh, that's not really the right image of him. This is how Snorri describes his trip uh, back to Denmark to settle business. Quote, Later, King Håkon went east to Skåne and raided everywhere, took money and taxes from the land, and killed all Vikings where he found them, both the Danes and the Vendir, before going even further east and raided there and took large sums of money from the land. End quote. And Snorri is then quoting a skald that is bragging about how much loot the king got with him back. And he's saying Vendir, by the way, that's meaning people that comes from north of Poland, each potentially north, uh, north of Germany also. If you remember, we in the very first episode of this series discussed the term Viking quite a bit because it is not an unproblematic term in a historical context. And you hear Snorri say that Hawken, uh, that, you know, he's going after all the Vikings in Skorna. So Viking is used as a word as pirates or sea warriors. So Hawken, in our view, a very classic, typical Viking king, does very much Viking things like raiding, but he does not see himself as a Viking simply because he is the king. He has the right to take taxes and and to, to secure order in his lands, even though, you know, for us it would, you know, just look like he was raiding like any other Viking. And Viking is also a verb, to go Viking, it means to go raiding, and Adic Bloodaxe would... He would not have any problem seeing, um, he went a little walking every now and then, even though he was the king. Basically that he was raiding a little bit outside of what he was expected to do. Hawkon the Good, on the other hand, while being a fierce warrior, he is likely not at all seeing himself as going on walking. He's more of this medieval statesman that, uh, you know, he's, he's not a berserker that has somehow ended up on the throne. That's Adic Bloddock's territory. Hawkon the Good has, has a very different way of ruling, and Norway under Hawkon has a few very prosperous decades. And while he never had much or any luck really trying to bring the Christian faith to Norway, you know, he, he seems pretty happy and he's a pretty good king overall. He did a lot of other useful stuff. He reformed the thing system, making it 
more of an aristocracy where people with power or property would have their say in political matters. So it was not really a totalitarian kingship like it was under his uh, his father, Harold Finehair, or his brother, Eric the Bloodaxe, and he set up a system with these fires and watchtowers all along the coastline so that all could be alerted if the sons of Aedic would come up and fight, which they did every now and then. Uh, we have one son named Gatorm that died at the Battle of Avaldsnes, and there's another one that will die later on. They are, as we said, constantly conspiring, and every every few years, you know, they're trying to come up with a fleet to conquer Norway. So this warning system with the fires, it's uh, it's very much like you see in Lord of the Rings and, and these kind of movies. Um, you know, there are these ready-made fires that are just standing there waiting on top of hills and there are people nearby that has the responsibility to light their fire once they see the fire before them lit and it will basically then cause a chain reaction so that everybody will know that they need to put their war gear on and, you know, get ready for battle. Now, the problem with this kind of communication system is that it is extremely vulnerable to human error. So basically, you would have an over-eager young shepherd or something thinking he is seeing warships on the horizon, he will light his beacon and basically start a reaction that can't be stopped. After a few of these false alarms, Hawkorn is getting a little bit annoyed, you know, and he's asking them not to do that unless they are 100% sure. And that is resulting in that no one is warning him when the sons of Eirik actually do come again with a huge fleet from Denmark right to the spot where Hawkorn and his men are at. When the king and his men are realising what is going on, they decide to stay and fight, even if they are heavily outnumbered. And according to the saga, the king is fighting in his golden helmet. There are some people there trying to cover up the the helmet so that they won't see where he is and so that not all the enemies will, you know, charge him at once. It's a super hard battle. Eventually, Hawkorn and his men prevails. Uh, there's a bit of heroism there. He's basically saying, come and get me, kind of thing. And, you know, he succeeds. Um, but in the end, he's hit by an arrow in his shoulder. And at first, it doesn't look that bad. But back on his ship... They just can't seem to stop the bleeding and it becomes apparent that the king is about to die. Now, this is a little bit fairy tale esque and this is some of the problems with Snorri and the sagas because they, 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 they seem to sort of overlap too perfectly sometimes. Like it all goes, you know, it all matches perfectly. So, so you have to take this with a pinch of salt. But according to the saga, uh, his men, they take him back to the place where he was born. He's probably in his 40s now. And Hawkorn, surprisingly enough, has no sons. Which, you know, seems a little bit strange. Because when you look at his dad, Harold, he has sons everywhere. And also, Eric the Blood has got heaps of sons with his wife, Gunhild, a couple of which, you know, Hawkorn has now killed. So, 
but he hasn't got an heir. So in an rather unexpected twist, Hawkon, while dying, is saying that he wants the kingdom to pass over to his enemies, to the sons of Eirik, as they are the only one with the right blood or something like that. It's kind of hard to understand his reasoning. But he also then says something along the lines that if he is to survive somehow, he still does not want to be king anymore. You know, he's fed up. He doesn't want to be king in a country full of heathens. And he allegedly laments the sins he has done towards God. Perhaps he's thinking about those bites of raw horses' liver he had to eat. Who knows? But this is the end of Hawkorn. And in a rather harsh twist of fate, Hawkorn, you know, was more or less still the only Christian guy in his crew, but he was also so beloved and respected. And, you know, the harvests had been so great in, you know, for as long as he had been king, uh, he had been such a fierce warrior. So, so the men around him, they thought it a real shame if he, of all people, wouldn't be going to Valhalla. In fact, they were all a little bit convinced that he really was a man of Odin, you know, such a fine lad, you know, of course he has to be. So they decided to give him a heathen burial anyways, just to just to be kind to his poor Christian soul. I mean, talk about turning around in your grave scenario. I do hope Hawkon ended up where he wanted in the afterlife. But yeah, it's a kind of comical situation still. I can't help but feel for poor, poor Hawkon, the only Christian among heathens. Anyways, this means that finally Gunnhild, now a quite mature woman, is allowed to put one of her sons on the throne. Or really, there are still several sons ruling together. They they had a bunch, she and, uh, she and Adik Bloodaxe. And the main son, the main king, will be known as Harold Greycloak. Yes, I know it's confusing. It's a lot of people called Harold and Hawkon and whatnot. And in Anglo-Saxon England, they're all called Ethel something. In France, they're all called Charles or Louise something, but that's just how it is. Now, Harold Greycloak is the new king. He's a rather uncharismatic king, I should say, besides from him having a very specific way of dressing. Allegedly, he was a bit into fur trading and it gave him his his name. But he and his brothers will never be as popular as Hawkon the Good was in, in Norway. Basically, they will be seen as mama's boys. They are controlled by Gunnhild, just called mother of kings sometimes. And also the harvests will be bad, which is, you know, something they really can't uh, you know, affect, but still something people pay attention to. And their unpopularity will also be noticed by the Danish king. These guys are well known in Denmark. After all, they had spent many, many years at the Danish court while plotting against Hawkon the Good, most of the time failing, and they were also known as oathbreakers, something that in a society with a lot of emphasis on honour is a terrible, terrible thing. Further reason for them being unpopular is that Harold Greycloak 
is known to be more concerned with money than the well-being of his people. And all in all, all the Eirik sons, or Gunnhild sons, they call both, uh, they would be, you know, they, they would be very little more popular than Daddy Eirik, the blood axe. And that weird Christian king from before just seemed so, so much better. Gunnhild uh, is key in all of this. Just to complicate things further, she was likely a Danish princess, and she might have been the half-sister of the new Danish king at this time, a man that also wants to have influence over Norway, a certain Harold Bluetooth. And if that name sounds awfully familiar to you, it might of course be because the Bluetooth technology that you quite possibly are using right now when listening to this podcast is where it gets its name from. Um, The Bluetooth symbol you see every now and then on your phone or device is the runes for A, G and B put on top of one another. Harold Bluetooth, often called Harold Gormson, as he was the son of Gorm the Old, uh, and you would think he had a black or blue or rotten tooth or something like that, he is also considered the first Christian king of Denmark. And let's talk a little bit about Harold Bluetooth. It seems that he became Christian through a deal with other Europeans, namely the now Holy Roman Emperor Otto I. As we've said, this conversion thingy was always part of any peace deals at this time. But Harold B. seems to really warm up to Christianity. He is a very peculiar historical character. He's a man with a rather mixed legacy. On one hand, he is seen as a great unifier that managed to bring all the Danish tribes together, much like Harold Feinherr had done in Norway. And this kind of connecting people thingy is why they chose his name on the Bluetooth technology. But at the same time, he is also losing a few big battles uh, against the Swedes. And while taking control over large parts of Norway at time, he also loses that uh, every now and then he's eventually deposed by his son, another huge person in history that we will discuss further, someone called Swen Forkbeard. Now, there are quite a few names right now, but I just want to make a super short detour to also mention some of our Swedish Vikings here, and it illustrates the politics at play at this point in time in Scandinavia. And I just want to say two words about the rather funny character. He's called Styrbjörn. And in Norse language, the word stud means racket or something. So if there's a lot of stud with something, it means that it's stressful and exhausting. So when this Björn got the name Styrbjörn, it was not because he was a quiet reader of poetry, but because he was just a lot of trouble. He was also related to the great king in Sweden called Erik the Victorious. And Sturbjörn was connected with the so-called Jums Vikings. They are bands of professional Viking warriors staying at a place called Jumsborg that we don't really know where it was, but that might have been, you know, in this area northern Poland along the coast there somewhere. At this point, 
we are, there's a lot of power politics, obviously, Game of Thrones style, really. It might have always been like this, that the, we just don't have the sources, but likely we see more of this now because it's connected to more solidified kingdoms and literacy and closer contact and even better ways of travel. Now, Harold Bluetooth, just like most other kings in the Middle Ages, he uses whatever means he can to expand his sphere of influence, and he supports this steward Bjorn that must have had a medical diagnosis or two, uh, and he gives him some men and ships, and he gets them to topple his relative, King Eric of, of Sweden. This is just so typical, and this happens. It happens all the time, really. He marries his daughter, Harold Bluetooth does, to Studebjörn, as one does, to cement the deal. It doesn't go too well. After landing in Sweden with, with his ship, Studebjörn sets them all on fire in order to prevent his men from going back, but that still doesn't work. As the Danes that are with him basically still say, screw this, and goes home anyways, and it would likely have been pretty easy for them to get back to Denmark anyways. A bit of a weird move, but Studebjörn was likely not a great general or leader, and he and his fierce Jumsvikings waged war on his brother Eric that after sacrificing to Odin at the famous pagan temple of Uppsala gained victory and killed them all. So just a typical story of the times, I would say, and one of Harold Bluetooth's failures in, in big politics, and there was a small detour into Sweden. Um, but the industrious Harold Bluetooth, he had many, many different plays going on. Harold Greycloak, the new king of Norway that's basically bossed around by his mother Gunnhild, that might have been Harold's half-sister, he was not long for this world. Harold Bluetooth had a Norwegian called Håkon Jarl in exile with him. It seems like it was always a good idea to have some powerful people with you in exile, so that you can throw them back into the mix with them, some sheep and men at a favourable time. And this Håkon Jarl was, was one of these people that uh, Harold Bluetooth had in exile living with him. He is an important figure, Håkon Jarl. He's the son of Sigurd Jarl, that was the man that protected Håkon the Good and helped him out of, helped him out of all this awkward religious situation. Uh, you know, the man that was saying that Håkon was not uh, doing the sign of the cross over the drinking cup. No, no, it was rather the sign of Thor's hammer and so forth. So he's the son of uh, this guy. And after Håkon the Good died, uh, his friend Sigurd was, of course, in a tight spot and was killed by the same burn them alive in their houses routine arranged by the Gunnhild sons. But Håkon Jarl, he has to flee. Obviously, he's the son of the helper of the former king. Um, he stays with Harold Bluetooth and he allegedly has what seems like a quite long depression. Uh, and after this, he comes to himself and then he tells Harold Bluetooth that he is ready to uh, to take up the, the fight for power in Norway. And uh, he's telling Harold Bluetooth that, hey, you know, Harold Greycloak, he's hated like hell. People don't like him. And basically, he gets Harold Bluetooth with him in on a plot where they are inviting uh, the Norwegian king to come to Denmark, where they are going to kill him in an ambush, and Håkon Jarl will go up back to Norway and take it by force, backed by the Danes. So, 
a lot of these people are either related, they are married, or they are something, something. Uh, like we said, Gunhild is the mother of Harold Greycloak, and she's also Harold Bluetooth's half-sister. So when killing Harold Greycloak, as they do, it succeeds, the plot uh, works, um, he, Harold Bluetooth is ba- basically helping killing his nephew. And Gunhild, which is now getting really old, is sent into exile, as is also very typical. People are sent into exile all the time if they're not killed. But we can't just let Gunhild disappear this quickly from our story. We need to talk about her a little bit more because she's fascinating. In the sagas, as we've said, we first meet her as the young wife of Adic Bloodaxe. Possibly she's only a teenager then, so she is queen in Norway for a few years with Adic the Bloodaxe in the 930s before they are forced to, to flee. When he dies, Adic the Bloodaxe, quite a bit later, he might be in his 50s and she might still only be in about, you know, in around 40 when he can't. she comes to the Danish court with a bunch of her young sons plotting all these revenges against Håkon the Good. Gunnhild would have a very long life that plays a huge part in Scandinavian politics and the sagas describes her as this femme fatale and or a witch that was seducing and sleeping with many, many different men. And here it might again be useful to point out that these stories were written down a couple of centuries later by Christian men in a time when female lust was kind of or very much, I'd say, frowned upon. So let's keep that in mind before this next tale that is just too amazing to, to not mention. Because one of the most colourful stories about Gunhild is when she is visited by an Icelandic man and basically just tells him that you're sleeping with me now. And the man has to obey, as do all men, when Gunhild orders them into her bed. So she's a man-eater or something, I suppose. After a while, having to sleep with Gunhild every night, this Icelandic man wants to go back to Iceland. And Gunnhild asks him if this might be because he has a girlfriend over there and that she wouldn't really like that very much. And he says, no, 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 it's not like that. Up on leaving, um, and up, uh, sorry, and up on, uh, up on leaving, Gunnhild tells him, you know, I know it's a big mistake, buddy, big, big, big mistake. I know you have a woman in Iceland and I'm going to curse you. So, when this poor man gets back to his wife on Iceland, the curse from Gunnhild kicks in and all of a sudden his penis becomes so large that it is impossible for him to have sex with his wife and his wife decides to divorce him after a while because of this lack of sex. Yeah, so... These kind of stories are not really helping given the saga's historical credibility, but, you know, they do at least add a whole lot of colour. There is always intrigue surrounding Gunnhild and her sons, and she, of course, falls out with Harold Bluetooth when he kills her son, the King of Norway, Harold Greycloak, um, and upon her returning to Denmark after a long time in exile, she's a very old woman and she's supposedly drowned in a bog, and that's the end of her. I mean, you can really, there's so much detail around Gunnhild also that we haven't really gone into. You can make a whole 
drama show about her and the intrigues, you know, the crown Viking style or something. This is all a gold mine. If you want to read the old sagas, it's just a treasure chest. Um, and at this stage in history, we are entering times where we have a lot of details and sometimes even several different sources more or less backing each other up. So while we in the beginning only had bits and pieces and a name here and there, we're now starting to get more and more meat on the bone, even though caveats are in order as there is of course still much to be disputed and debated in the sources. But, you know, we are getting closer to having something resembling historians actually writing things down, like we have Saxo Grammaticus, and this of course has something to do with Christianity, getting more and more space with monks writing in Latin and so forth. After killing Harold Greycloak and helping Haakon Jarl take over power in Norway as a vassal king, Harold Bluetooth is proclaiming himself as the ruler of both Denmark and Norway, uh, so in a sense he's also all of a sudden a Christian king of Norway. But Harold also has problems spreading this new faith in both countries really. Harold Bluetooth is famous, among other things, for erecting some of the so-called yelling runestones in Denmark, um, where he proclaims this, quote, King Harold bade these memorials to be made after Gorm, his father, and Thyra, his mother, the Harold that won the whole of Denmark and Norway and turned the Danes to Christianity, end quote. Now, I suppose you are meant to brag a little bit on these stones, but in reality he only controlled the parts of Norway for a short while, and he never really turned any of those countries into Christianity. But if if we are to be a bit kind, we can say that he did play a part as one of several kings and rulers that were really starting to push Christianity in this in this uh, in this time period. Håkon Jarl is normally seen as the fifth king of Norway, even though he never actually called himself a king and preferred the title of Earl or Jarl to his death. He didn't stay a vassal for long, as Harold Bluetooth continued to have some troubles with the empires on the European mainland to the south. This time Otto II, the new Holy Roman Empire, uh, was a problem, and Harold Bluetooth's reliance on Håkon Jarl and his Norwegian soldiers basically put an end to the vassalage, because Håkon said that, oh sure, we'll help you out against those pesky Central Europeans, but if you want the whole army, not just me and my closest fighting me, you must stop demanding taxes, or they won't fight, and that was basically the end of the, the vassalage. This is also a time where the Danavirke comes into play. You might have heard about the Danavirke. It's a big defensive line between Denmark and Germany uh, that the Danish kings used to defend from invasions, similar to the Maginot line that we had in modern times between France and, and, and Germany. These are quite big and costly battles between the Holy uh, Roman Empire and, and the Danes, and... Um, uh, and after them, Håkon Jarl is seen as the de facto ruler of Norway from about, give or take, 975 in around 20 years onwards. For Harold Bluetooth, his reign is a constant thug of war, really. He's fighting hard to keep his kingdom, and at the same time he tries to expand it, and he meets his faith when he refuses to share his kingdom with his 
possibly illegitimate son, Sven Forkbeard. Sven, he is a real character, and we're now really entering into the golden age of Danish Viking kings, where one is more famous than the other. But I just want to get back to Håkon Jarl before we move on to Sven, you know, finally someone not called Håkon and Harald, but let's talk a little bit about Håkon Jarl, because he is actually extremely important. In terms of the christening, that will in fact turn Scandinavia into a part of Western Europe and is the beginning of the end of the Viking area, and that is really the essence of this episode. Håkon Jarl, he is not one of the most important contributors, even though he's also forced to convert by Harold Bluetooth, but basically Håkon more or less from the beginning goes his own ways and as we'll see in fact he will end up being an extremely devout believer in the old gods and he is basically fighting Christianity pretty hard. He has no intentions whatsoever in converting Norway into Christianity and he will end up being seen as the last pagan ruler of Norway. Of course, people at the time did, didn't know this, but when we are, are starting to look at the real christening of Norway, the year 995 will be a game changer because that is the year Håkon Jarl dies and never again will there be a ruler that will do blood sacrifices to Odin and Thor. Now, Håkon Jarl is a mysterious character. He is described as this handsome guy in his youth that seems to hit uh, this depression, like we said, while in exile with Harold Bluetooth, before he gets his act together and decides to fight and gain power in Norway after they have gotten Harold Greycloak and the Eirik sons out of Norway. To begin with, Håkon Jarl seems like a pretty capable ruler, But I think it's fair to say that there are certain dark patterns surrounding this man. Um, He's a guy that might not be completely mentally well. Even though he's seemingly intelligent and industrious and competent in many ways, there are a few things pointing towards him having some mental health issues, I'd say. First, of course, heavy depression he has in Denmark. He almost starves to death, allegedly. And after ruling Norway for a while, he is, of course, surprise, surprise, attacked by a Danish army. And this is actually ordered there by Sven Forkbeard. Anyway, in his, in this tale, at this battle of Hjörungavog, it's called, he, Håkon Jarl, he's not only a believer of the old Norse gods, but he has himself a special goddess that he sees as his personal uh, protector and this goddess is just extremely peripheral in the in the Norse mythology and I, I, I almost thought he invented her he hasn't completely invented her but she's a rare outlier in Norse mythology and he worships her hardcore her name is Thorgad Helgobrud not sure what her names mean but the bride in the end means uh, brood means bride So, and she might have also been one of Odin's Valkyries. And during this battle, uh, he's doing badly. And quite a few of those hardcore Yums Vikings from the East, they're also 
there fighting on the Danish side, making life really hard for him. And allegedly the battle is so hard that both sides calls for a timeout, basically to collect the dead and wounded and recuperate. And then he goes into the forest to pray to this goddess of his. And he bargains with her, saying that he can sacrifice everything that she wants, but she's not happy, not until he suggests sacrificing humans. Then she starts listing up, or he starts listing up suggestions and, um, and decides that he, you know, in the end, the only thing that will do is that he sacrifices his seven-year-old son to her, and he promptly tells his thrall, or slave, called Kark, soon to become the most famous slave in working history, to sacrifice his young son Erling, which Kark does, and the fortune of the battle turns, and allegedly he feels that this goddess is uh, turning up on the battlefield, shooting round arrows at the Jums Vikings, and Norwegians eventually win. Now, human sacrifice was in one end of the extreme when it came to the Norse religion, but... Not necessarily normal, it seems, but it did exist. But I'd in general say that sacrificing your child is not a great sign of fantastic mental stability. So there is this. Uh, Håkon Njal is a hardcore believer. He's even sacrificing his young son. And when he's getting older, Håkon is getting weirder. And perhaps more than weird... He's getting really creepy, and he's more or less demanding to sleep with every woman he sees, married or not. And this is, of course, not a great way to grow your popularity, basically raping all the women you can in the kingdom. And who knows how true this is. Again, this is the the last pagan king of Norway, written about by Christians, so perhaps they are portraying him in a worse light than he deserves, but after sending his slaves to a noble woman, telling her that, hey, it's your turn to sleep with the owl, lucky you, he basically gets so unpopular that he has to flee. So there's a rebellion ongoing, and there is a new player on the scene, a very legendary figure called Olaf Tryggvason, and he's sailing in to claim power, perfectly timed, uh, and it's a bit dodgy, but you know this is how the the saga tells it. Seems too too convenient, really. But funnily enough, also Gunil had, when she was alive, seen him as a threat because of his family and tried to kill him as an infant to no avail. And now Olaf Tryggvason is a grown man. He's a battle hardened Viking. He's Christian. He's coming home to Norway to settle scores. And Håkon Jarl takes his slave Kark with him and runs off to this farm to hide. Now, they are both men at around 60 or something. Allegedly, Håkon Jarl and his slave Kark were allegedly both born on Christmas Eve, and Kark was gifted to Håkon to be his slave for life. Now the two men that have lived together for their entire lives are fugitives, and they are hiding in the pigsty. While Olaf Tryggvason, that kind of knows that Håkon is nearby, allegedly stands up on this rock and shouts that there will be huge rewards for whoever can gift him Håkon's head. 
After thinking about it for a while, Kark, the slave, he takes his knife out and kills his master and comes forward to Olaf with his master's head and basically says, Oi, here he is, where's my gold? And, um, you know, that is not how things work in a slave society, though. So Kark, being not a quote-unquote real human being, just as traitor, has killed his master, so Olaf promptly cuts his head off as well, and that is the end of both men. If you ever travel to the Norwegian city of Trondheim, or Nidaros as it was called, you will almost certainly see a big statue of a Viking ruler that has a chopped off head behind his behind his leg, behind his booth. And this is uh, Olaf Tryggvason, and some has also seen is that uh, it's the head of the thrall Kark, whereas more likely it is meant to be a hidden idol of the god Thor, and that he is portrayed this way because of him sort of defeating paganism. But if you go to Trondheim, you'll see it. Because Olaf, he is, as, as we said, of course, he's a Christian now, and he's also a mythical figure, and he will only rule, actually, for about five years, from 995 to the year 1000. Olaf's fate and... As when Forkbeard's fortunes are a little bit intertwined. Olaf was a Viking raider before becoming king. He was a Christian apparently after meeting with this mystic that was able to predict certain things that became true. So he was convinced that, uh, that uh, Christ was the path for him. But he likely did not seem very Christian to the people around him, especially the British, because he raided there a lot in a time period that will see Viking attacks in England ramp up again. There's a lot about Olaf Tryggvason that seems a little bit like a fairy tale. Um, He ended up in slavery, allegedly as a child, before being found again in the slave market at the age of seven. Uh, He was recognized somehow, and yeah, it seems a bit strange. But we know that he spent time in the East with the Kievan Rus, and then he will also make uh, his mark as a powerful military commander. So in Denmark... The situation is, as we've said, Harold Bluetooth is disposed by this rebellion led by his son Sven Forkbeard. Uh, actually, the rebellion initially fails, but Harold is mortally wounded and uh, in this battle, and he dies a bit later, and that leaves the door open to Sven. The name Forkbeard, it comes from the fact that he had this long moustache kind of thingy that looked like a pitchfork upside down. And he will, as we said, try to invade Norway with Jumsvikings before being repelled by Håkon Jarl and his supernatural goddess evoked by him sacrificing his son. And then there is this mighty king in Sweden called Eric the Victorious that we mentioned that Harold Bluetooth has some problems with. So for a while, uh, Sven is actually exiled from his kingdom in Denmark. And together with the future king in Norway, Olaf Tryggvason, he goes on a lot of raids in England. The English monarch at this point is Ethelred the Unready, and that's fair to say is not on the top 10 list of British kings of all time. And he is taking up a habit from the continent, uh, namely that he has to start paying Danegeld to Olaf and Sven. It's not a great tactic, because while it works for a little bit to pay the Viking Vikings off, it also attracts more Vikings. And so he tries to hire some of them as mercenaries, 
it's all very typical. I mean, this is what's been going on for a few hundred years now. The paying off and the hiring of mercenaries, and it works kind of for a while, but not so much. And a long story short, all of a sudden, we have now seen a return to how it used to be decades before this. You know, we have big working fleets all of a sudden raiding in England, demanding huge ransoms. There also seems to have been an element of underestimating the Norsemen at some points, as there are actually a few set battles taking place that the Vikings win quite decisively. These men are, at this point, they are no longer unorganized. Some of them will have taken part in large battles on the continent, sometimes in service of other powers. So these are no longer random raiders. They are, you know, professional soldiers, some of the best soldiers in Europe. So in the year 995, uh, it's changing a lot for both Olaf and Swim, as they are both returning to their homelands to become kings there in Norway and in Denmark. For Sven's part, what changed was that this Eric the Victorious in Sweden had a huge loss at another battle, drastically weakening his position, so Sven is able to regain control in Denmark and will shortly also take control over large parts of Sweden, and Olav will start his short-lived reign as a monarch of Norway. At this point, it is hard to say how large parts of Norway he controlled. The Danes had huge influence in and around the Oslo area, and in either year 999 or 1000, Olaf dies at a sea battle, quite likely against his former companion Sven Forkbeard. The sources are not in sync here on what happened, but it seems that he drowns as he fell into the water with his armor on. Olaf Tryggvason has a bit of a mythical twist to him, also because his body was never found, and there would of course be tales of how he miraculously survived and so forth, but yeah, he clearly didn't. When it comes to converting Norway to Christianity, it's unclear how big of a role Olaf played. He was sometimes known as Crowbone, because he allegedly was a big fan of seers and magic and such. So, you know, he seems to have been one of these hybrid believers of the time. On one side, he's kind of worshipping Christ and he's identifying as a Christian. But, you know, at the same time, he has a lot of fascination and sort of belief for the old customs as well. So how Christian he really was, you know, is open for debate. Anyways, we're seeing the big trend here. The big lines is that the rulers are, you know, more and more leaning towards Christianity and they are becoming closer to monarchs on the European continent. After Olaf Tryggvason's demise, Sven Forkbeard all of a sudden has control over large part of Scandinavia and he is growing to become a hugely powerful monarch. At the same time as the Viking raids in England are continuing and Athelred is as unready as always, he keeps having to pay raiders huge amount of silver and he seems to get more and more frustrated. We must also remember that we at this time also 
have a huge part of Scandinavian and especially Danish influence in England, and it has been there for about 150 years. We have had the Dane law that came after the Great Heathen Army, where the, where the Danes are allowed to, to you know, have their own laws in huge parts of England. And we can also see this in English language today, that many words have been borrowed from Old Norse, and place names in England, especially in the North East, are heavily influenced by Norse. You have Grimsby, for example, Grimsby, it's a Norse name, or even place names that, um, uh, kind of all, all, almost actually every place name that has the word gate in it is comes from Norse. It doesn't mean gate, it means uh, gata, or gata meaning street. So the result is that there is, uh, around year thousands, a lot of Scandinavian and especially Danish influence in 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 English. In England, there are a lot of people probably still speaking Danish there. There are uh, people with Scandinavian customs and so forth, and even though sort of more or less integrated with English society, they are a huge sort of group, a huge ethnic group in England. So, in year 1002, in November, Athelred, he has had it with the Danes, and he is planning what will be known as St. Bryce's Day Massacre. During this day of festivity, the English planned a nationwide genocide on all Danish people they can find. Mercenaries, women, children and whatnot. Everybody that they view to be Danish would be assassinated. So mobs all over England was killing every Dane they can lay their hands on. Ethelred is attested these words on this quote. A decree was sent out by me with a council of my leading men and magnates to the effect that all the Danes who had sprung up in this island, sprouting like cockle amongst the wheat, were to be destroyed by a most just extermination, and thus this decree was to be put into effect even as far as death. End quote. Now, this ethnical cleansing obviously did not go down well with Sven Forkbeard, especially not since his sister was amongst the victims. And this is basically the start of an open war between England and Denmark. So Sven at this time is, uh, he has a much more settled situation at home. Finally, he has control over Denmark, he has relative control over Sweden, and also Norway is now more or less under his control. There is now another earl in charge there called Eirik, and um, that is, in fact, he's a more of a vassal than the previous Norwegian rulers has been. So Scandinavia is now much more united than it has been before, which is a problem for England. So in the next year, in 1003, Sven goes to England with a huge fleet to get revenge for the massacre, and this will be start of the, a very messy period that goes back and forth. There are some key players in here that are changing sides, uh, and Ethelred is ironically relying very heavily on Scandinavian mercenaries to, to defend against the Danish, uh, so there are Vikings basically on both sides in this conflict, uh, in addition to obviously also Anglo-Saxons. Uh, 
And in order to not get entangled in all too many names in the fighting that will take place in the next years on English soil, there are two names that are important and that we will use a lot of time on for the remainder of this episode. These are perhaps the top two Vikings of all times, uh, at least very good candidates, and they might also be the most famous Vikings to have ever lived, although they are at this time both very young men, and the first one is called Knut. Later he's going to be entitled Knut the Great, Knut or Knuts, depending on what sort of uh, pronunciation you like, and he is the son of Sven Forkbeard, Knut the Great. And there is also another guy, there's a second guy that's super important, he is a future king of Norway, he is called Olaf Haraldsson, sometimes called Olaf the Stout, that will later be known for history as Saint Olaf, and that tells you quite a lot right there. We get this fierce Viking warrior actually ending up as a Christian saint. How on earth can that happen, you might ask? Well, we'll find out. But just keep these two names in mind, Canute and Olaf, because they will be the two most important characters for for the remainder of this episode. And uh, when they are coming into our story, it is during this time period after the St. Bryce's Day Massacre. They are both part of, of the scene when Sven Forkbeard is waging his war on England and Ethelred the Unready. They are more or less contemporary, probably born around 995, 993, and they also more or less, you know, they, 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 they die more or less at the same time. Knut lives, outlives all lives by five years or something. During the years after the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, there is a lot of raiding in England from Sven. They occupy the Isle of Wight at the south coast of England, and Ethelred still has to pay him off several times. Uh, huge amounts of silver is shifting from England to Denmark as punishment and and ransom. It really is a money game where people changing sides in the conflict from both sides. So certain peoples that are fighting against each other at times during these years will end up fighting shoulder to shoulder and also the other way around. Some of the Viking armies uh, to be uh, seems to be just straight up mercenary armies that are really not concerned if they are fighting for the Danes or for the English. England has at this point, well over 200 years of experience when it comes to being raided by Vikings. But at this point, the Danes are just getting too strong, much because they are now one united monarchy that is relatively stable at this time, and they have one undisputed king, Sven Forkbeard. So this is now more like a strong medieval kingdom with a Christian monarch, Sven is Christian, using Viking technology and battle tactics more than random Viking raiders with many different sea kings or chieftains and pity kings running the show. This is a clear hierarchy with more or less professional soldiers. Sven seems to be 
quite genuinely convinced about the Christian faith, much like his father, Harold Bluetooth. And I don't think really it was just a case of something he did to please someone or to gain political advantage. Uh, but of course, this is really hard to know. It depends who you, who you ask. If you read a traditional schoolbook of history, it might be empathized, empathized that, the, that the christening of Scandinavia was done from the top down due to political reasons, as the church and the monarchy was closely intertwined and the two helped solidify the other. So if you had ambitions as a monarch, you better have the church on your side, because they would tell... Uh, tell people that God was backing you and you would like to make use of the church institutions like churches where you could have priests blessing you, talking nice, uh, nicely about you in front of your subjects every week. You would have priests and monks that could read and write down edicts and other stuff for you uh, and so forth. Then there's definitely an element of realpolitik in this, no doubt. But I also think that there is some genuinely things happening here and that is that Christianity is really spreading amongst the Scandinavian elite at this point. It is really starting to become a trend and a religion that they really believe in. We must also remember that much of these elites spent relatively little time in their home countries. They were traveling a lot on their ships and it seems that more and more young boys from the aristocracy were expected to go raiding as part of their, you know, education almost. We see this with several of these Norwegian kings. Eric Blodax was given many ships to go raid. Olaf Tryggvason spent a lot of time abroad raiding and trading before returning. And Olaf, the Olaf we are starting to to touch upon now, he was sent off at the age of 12, according to the sagas, to go raiding and fighting as part of his aristocratic upbringing. So these elites that become these rulers, these are not really your average farmers living in the same village for all of their lives, besides from, you know, perhaps taking part in a battle or two when the local earl demands it. These are globe trotters, likely knowing or at least understanding many different languages and cultures with a very detailed understanding also about the various river system and river systems and geography around Europe. Also, the shipbuilding is just getting better and better. The routes of travel are now very well known. So these people are quite literally traveling all over Europe, all the way down to Spain, some of them, and into Finland, into the rivers of Russia, and to, to Kiev and into today's Ukraine. So while many of the working men will be pagans still, they are now increasingly being led by by my nobles and kings that are Christian by faith and by heart. And this religious aspect of the conflict that was present in the beginning is not as important anymore as it used to when we had the great heathen army roaming about in England. You would likely see a big mix in what symbols these soldiers and these armies would wear. You had Thor's hammers and crosses in between one another, some people would wear both, and the archaeology uh, is as well showing clearly this overlap, that people could, in fact, both you know, be buried with the hammer of Thor as an amulet, but also the cross of Christ. And while England 
previously had great, great, great rulers such as Alfred and Athelstan to handle the Danes and the Norsemen coming through by both military and political means, Athelred is just not in the same mold of kings and he is at least not very successful. And in 1013, there has been fighting for almost 10 years now, Sven finally manages to launch a full invasion of England, and this is not a raiding party, this is a ploy to take over power on the British Isles once and for all. With him, Sven has his son Canute. That is, it's already clear that Canute will be his successor. So unlike with his father, Harold Bluetooth, that Sven actually had to get rid of, um, who will be the next Danish king after Sven is not disputed at all at this point. And there are there will be an awful lot of battles that we get documented in many different sources, and Sven eventually triumphs, and Ethelred is forced to flee across the channel over to Normandy, and Sven is proclaimed king of England by reluctant English earls. With him to Normandy is Ethelred's Viking mercenaries, what is left of them, and one of these mercenaries that have changed allegiance is none other than Olav Haraldsson, the Saint Olav. Remember, St. Olaf and Canute, two biggest figures for the rest of this history. And it's during this time in France, likely at this time during France, where Olaf allegedly sees the light and becomes a devout Christian. It is supposed to have happened at a big powerful ceremony in a cathedral in Rouen, and it seems that from this point on, Olaf is a die-hard believer of Quite Christ, or the White Christ. But more than only a believer he starts to think, like many other Europeans have thought before him, that not only is Jesus the only true God and the most powerful God, he also starts seeing the pagan gods as demons. Olaf is not really about to take a tolerant view on the old customs, and even though he still needs to be pragmatic about this, and he knows this, he is also starting a little bit to see it as his mission to really actually bring Christianity to his native Norway. While in Normandy, something unexpected happens, because right after all this, after his victory, Sven all of a sudden dies. It's a little uncertain how he dies, but he seems to have died of natural causes. Could be some sort of sickness or infection or who knows. And, you know, of course, someone is um, pointing at some sort of uh, some sort of the Anglo-Saxon saints playing a part, taking their revenge on the day in St. Edmund that was pierced by all those arrows in the previous episode is a, is a usual suspect in this regard. But only five weeks, basically, after being proclaimed king, Sven Forkbeard dies. He is nevertheless the first walking king of England, technically speaking, so about 220 years after the first walking attacks on Lindisfarne and all that has happened in between, for the first time England is not ruled by an Anglo-Saxon ruler, but by a Scandinavian, by a Viking. You may not always find him on the list of English kings, as he had not in fact had time to be crowned in an official ceremony, 
But if I was at the pub quiz and got the question, who was England's first non-Anglo-Saxon king, and the answer is not Sven Forkbeard, I would protest quite loudly. Now, even though Sven had his supporters in England, and there is immediately a plan to transfer power to his son, Knut, the English, they are not really that keen on Viking rulers if they have another option, and they see Sven's death as an opportunity to try to return power to Ethelred's family and to get him or his family reinstated. So Ethelred in one way gets another chance. He he um, he seems like he returns to England and amongst those with him is allegedly Olaf Haraldsson, the later Saint Olaf, that is at this point in his early 20s and a fierce warrior. So we have Knut son of Sven, and we have Olav as the main man. And Snorri Sturluson, the Icelandic chief, then we have a huge debt for actually writing down so many of these old sagas, is actually more or less only building up to the story of St. Olav in his writings. Of all the sagas, of all the kings, the one about Olav is by far the longest and most important one And while some kings only have a few pages, Olaf's saga is almost like a book on his own. And this just tells us a lot about uh, how important Olaf became after his death, mostly, actually. You could actually say that uh, Snorri is mainly writing about Olaf. One third, I think, of all the text is about St. Olaf, and then, you know, the rest is spread out among many, many, many other kings. According to Snorri, Olaf is a man of medium height. He is barrel-chested, he's strong, he has blonde hair, it seems blondish hair and reddish skin. He has a very commanding voice, so he is a man with a very great authority and a very great sense of purpose from a young age. But when Snorri writes, he quotes all these named scalds and all those sagas just full of Snorri quoting various verses and saying the name of the scald that composed this verse. And at the time, you definitely wanted a scald with you on your, on your missions. Especially the Icelandic ones were great and they would be your PR apparatus composing this scaldic poetry that will be memorized and retold around campfires. Olav definitely had a fair few skulls with him that Snorri names, and I'd love to quote some more scaldic poetry than what I have done already in this series, but it is just exceptionally hard to translate. And uh, yeah, some of the reason is that a lot is not necessarily properly translated into English before, so I have to try to do it myself. Secondly, because I'm struggling some of the time to make sense of it, I'm switched between reading Danish and Old Norwegian when I'm reading this, And thirdly, because they have a form that is rather odd and is meant for orating and proclamation, not really for being written down. So I'll give you an example. It is completely made up by me, but inspired from what we get in Snorra, so you'll get an idea. So a typical quad, as it might be called, about St. Olaf could be like this. Great warrior King Olav, on his seahorse rode, many foes lost their blood to the sea that spring, and much silver he bore to the halls of Hordalam. So, yeah, made up by me, but very typical. The writings are just full of this, um, 
huge amounts of these sort of verses go on and on, um, kind of to, to record history, saying who did it, you know, what did they do, when when did they do it, um, and so that's all of And he will help Ethelred uh, and his son, a guy called Edmund Ironside, to, to regain power shortly. Actually, Ethelred, a bit of a fun fact, I, I joked about his uh, before, but it's actually wrong, because Ethelred did not get his nickname the Unready, because he wasn't ready for the fight with the Danes, as it might sound like. It was, a fact, a pun on his name. That means well-advised or, <clears throat> or noble counsel. And Unready was referring to him being poorly advised or having no counsel. So it's a very mockingly name. He's the noble counsel with no counsel or something like that. He's, a, it's, it's, he's in general not remembered well in history. Also, after his death, there was quite a bit of slanderous things made up about him. But I suppose that's what happened when you lose your kingdom. Regardless, he does briefly <coughs> seem to get back into power, at least through his son Edmund Ironside, uh, as his supporters are using this opportunity of Sven's death to get a bit of a rematch with the Danes. At the time of Sven Forkbeard's death, Canute is back in Scandinavia gathering fresh troops, so he basically needs to get back and take this rematch in order to hold power of, of England. Allegedly, Olaf leads a successful assault on London Bridge against the Danes. Now, Canute is, as well as Olaf and his father Sven, a very capable ruler. And he quickly manages to regroup, and he's not going to give up on England anytime soon. And over the next couple of years, there are a few more battles. Athelred dies, and Canute wins a decisive battle over Edmund Ironside, still agreeing to share the Kingdom of England with him more or less along the lines of the old Dane law, before Edmund Ironside also dies and Canute is instated as the sole ruler of England in 1016, and this time the kingship is going to last. At this point in time, Norway has been ruled by an earl that is more of a vassal to the Danes than was the case with Hawkon Jarl, um, the guy that sacrificed his son to the obscure goddess, as you might remember, and at this time... We are talking about Canute is ruling a, a North Sea Empire. But as England is conquered, Norway is gradually slipping away. Because what is happening is that all our friend Olaf, later Saint Olaf, is returning to Norway during these last battles between Ethelred and Canute, and he comes home in 1015 as this successful warrior and what he feels is a claim to the Norwegian throne. First of all, he is Norwegian, and he feels that he is a descendant of Harald Feinheer, which he might or might not be, given all the, given all the children that Harald Feinheer had. It's quite possible, and, you know, regardless, it's a very convenient thing for him to claim in terms of legitimacy. The timing is also great, as he would have known, as most professional soldiers in Norway at this time were tied down in England, and also the, the, the vassal Earl was with Canute fighting, um, and basically Canute at this time is not in a position to go back up to Norway to settle scores as he has to keep control in both Denmark and England, and Olaf will, will very early on start to build alliances with the local bigwigs in Norway and the kings of Sweden. 
Now, Sweden is a bit of a different animal to Denmark and Norway and has, in a way, gotten a little bit shorter when it comes to institutionalizing their monarchy. And the Swedish kings are in many ways weaker than especially the Danes, but also the Norwegian kings at this time. Later on in history, Sweden will be very much the bigger brother to especially Norway, but at this point, the power centers are more clearly in Denmark and partly in Norway. So when Olav comes in, he has with him priests and bishops, and he starts celebrating Mass regularly, and he's taking a keen interest in how religion is being practiced in Norway. He's not going all in from the start, though. He's spending time traveling around on these things, these meetings, securing support as king of Norway, and he knows that Canute at some point is going to come up there and settle the scores. In many ways, what Olaf does at this time around 1015, 1016 is a little bit similar to what Harold Finehair did. He is reunifying the country by winning over many local rulers, some by force and others by politics, and he does this pretty well at this time. Now, Olaf is a complex character in some ways because it's a little bit hard to know what you should believe or not when it comes to him because Olaf is one of those characters in history that becomes much more important after his death than when he was in fact alive. So there might be quite a bit of retrofitting to him. Even though, of course, he was also important when he was alive, he was a king, but no one, and not least Olaf himself, could know how important he would become later. Olaf is traditionally being thought to be the main force bringing Christianity to Norway, and that is in many ways true, but we don't really know how much of an active effort he put in when it came to spreading the Christian faith while alive and what basically just followed in his footsteps. It's quite possible that his impact of bringing Christianity to Scandinavia is more by chance than by his active doing. We're not quite sure. It does, however, seem that he likely did take a different approach when it came to, for the first time, actively attacking pagan shrines and tearing down the idols of Thor and Odin, which likely was a huge deal for some people and something that also earned him a few enemies. There is talk about torture and forcibly christening pagans, the so-called sword christening, but it's rather unclear in the sources how much of this actually took place. He seems to have ordered Christianity as the only legal religion in Norway in 1024. This is somewhat debated, it's a little bit uncertain. And as we said, the problem is that all this is written down after his death at a time when he's a very different figure to what he was alive. But it seems like he is at least pushing Christianity to some extent and is willing to either exile or confiscate property of people that are not willing to convert. We know he had a bishop with him. He's as a guy called Grim Kell that plays a big part. Um, but there are a few unanswered questions to what Olaf actively did in terms of bringing Christianity to Scandinavia. But regardless of that, there is absolutely no doubt that Olaf is the huge turning point 
when it comes to Christianity being the only religion in these areas, and you'll learn why in a minute. So while Olaf is trying to make Norway great again, so to speak, with the, the ghost of Canute is always there lurking in the shadows, everyone knows that there will be some sort of payback for Olaf going up and grabbing Norway while Canute settles business in England, but this takes some time. After Canute wins, he is spending most of his time as king ruling from England, and he puts in powerful earls rule the other places of the of the empire for him, most notably in his native Denmark. Canute is a little bit of a blurry historical figure for some strange reasons, but according to Professor Kenneth W. Hall, that has an excellent lecture series on this, Canute is a bit of a victim of bad PR. That's not to say that he is having a legacy anything close to as bad as Ethelred the Unready, but apparently Olaf, he had the best Icelandic skulls, and he had a much more effective PR machinery, and that plays a huge role in the legacy of the two men. But also in England, perhaps even to this day, Canute has a little bit of a difficult legacy, because he might not quite fit into the English self-image. You know, he's seen as an English king, he's definitely on the English king list, but he's an occupier, and he is, you know, some British historians see him as a, you know, he came in as a, a, a Danish white king, but uh, he died as a British monarch. It's not probably that simple. He kind of seems to have ruled as a Scandinavian Viking ruler, and sources like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles seems to kind of recognize that he was there, but is far more concerned with the deeds and accomplishments by other English. So, so while Canute is super, super powerful and he has full control over Denmark and England, and as we'll see, he will also get that in Norway and indirectly Sweden to, to really have this huge North Sea empire, he is never one of those really cool dudes in history. In England, he made great use of the system that was already there, first set up by Alfred with churches and roads and marketplaces and so forth. And you can probably live in medieval England at much, much worse times than under the reign of Knut the Great. But for some reason, perhaps lack of great skulls or perhaps for not being English, he's remembered more as someone a little bit distant, yet very, very powerful. He probably looked to Charlemagne and tried to build some sort of empire like that. He went to Rome a couple of times uh, and he wanted to be seen and he succeeded largely as someone uh, of the few big, big monarchs in, in Europe at, at this time. But as we will see, Canute and Olaf's fates are furthermore intertwined. And while there is no doubt that Canute was the most powerful and successful of the two while alive, it is quite possible to argue that Olaf is the biggest game-changer overall. What happens is this. After Olaf having inserted his rule in Norway, constantly travelling around tying alliances, but also imposing new law and uh, Christian faith, he is understanding that there are things going to happen with uh, Canute that has solidified power in England and he has a pretty stable rule there. His earls are now in place in Denmark. Uh, so there is a, a constant threat there. 
Olav has had a few quarrels with the Swedish king, but after a bit of back and forth, he allies with his son, a guy called Arnold Jakob, and decides to make a preemptive strike on Denmark, to basically attack first, before Knut can gather his forces in a more united campaign against Norway and Sweden. This culminates in a battle in 1026 that will actually be the beginning of the end for Olav, that has at this point been ruling in Norway for 10, 11 years, something like that. Olav and his Swedish allies suffers quite uh, great losses, and that is in effect their end of campaigning in Denmark, and Olav returns without his ships in a reduced state. At this time, he is already a bit of a controversial figure. He has been quite harsh in his way of ruling and not willing to compromise on the religious parts of his rule, and basically Olaf never recovers. And what happens is kind of ironic, because Olaf, that will become this huge figure and symbol of Norwegian identity, he is actually... Uh, put aside by his own, he's deposed by his own. So when Canute the Great finally comes to Norway in 1028, Olaf has to flee, and the Norwegian earls and local power holders are now embracing Canute as a new king of Norway. At this point, it seems like it is game over for Olaf, and in many ways it is, but he is stubborn and ambitious. He then spends some time in exile in Novgorod, in today's Russia, and ponders his next move. And it turns out that his next move is going to be an audacious one. One might even call it suicidal. He decides that he wants to go back and uh, get the throne, and he will use his Swedish allies again to build up a new army, again, quite ironically, mostly consisting of Swedish pagans, and is marching in towards the Trendlag area, one of those areas where paganism in Norway stood the strongest still. Now, all this is uh, not very well known in Norway, because in school books he's seen as this Norwegian Christian king with Norwegian Christian soldiers, but he was in fact marching with mostly pagan Swedes against an army of mostly pagan Norwegian uh, Norwegians, and is invading his own country where they had deposed him for the Danish king, using mostly foreign mercenaries. Allegedly, the Swedish soldiers with him were singing old songs about the time the Swedes had fought the old legendary Danish king Ralf Kraki as they went into battle, but it helped little. This is the summer of 1030, and this battle is epic. It's called the Battle of Stiklestad. Likely Olaf and his men were outnumbered pretty badly, and there likely were no more than 5,000 in total taking part of the battle, but it is, interestingly enough, the only big Viking-on-Viking land battle on Scandinavian soil that we know of. All those others are at least partly sea battles, but this takes place on a field. Unsurprisingly, Olaf is defeated and he is killed on the battlefield by the local army and that's it for Olaf. So why is he really a big figure, you might ask? The thing that happens is that Olaf was already at this point a semi-mythical figure and right after his death, 
There are reports of miracles coming in, that people that are close to his corpse are all of a sudden miraculously healed of disease, and all of a sudden this is really taking off like crazy. And the strange thing is that it is not only happening in Norway, it is happening all over Northern Europe, and you get these cults of Olaf popping up everywhere. You get them in Russia, you get them in Poland, in Denmark, in Germany, in England, And all of a sudden, this Viking king, Olaf the Stout, is seen as a Christian saint. And some of this is probably attributed to his dramatic death at Stiklestad, that he almost had this kind of Christian martyr death, being the king believing in Christianity in Norway, leading his army against the pagans and suffering death, much like Christ himself when faced with the brutality of the non-believers. So a year or so after his death, his body is uncovered again, and according to legend, his hair and nails has continued to grow, his flesh is uncorrupted, and he is proclaimed a saint straight away, and his remains are held in Nidaros, that is the modern city of Trondheim, and a church is built around them. And all of a sudden, Scandinavia has a real saint that is not some Irish monk, but that is a blonde Viking king. And this has a huge impact, both when it comes to the spread of Christianity in Scandinavia, but also when it comes to shaping Norwegian identity. In many ways, a Viking saint is the missing piece of the puzzle. This was what people needed to finally move away from Thor and Odin. They needed something a bit more concrete to worship. And in Saint Olaf, they all of a sudden had found that Christian idol that was not an obscure figure from far away, but their very own old king. In fact, in icons and imagery made after this, it's only Mary, mother of Jesus, that is more often depicted than Olaf in the Nordics, going all the way to the Reformation. In many ways, Christianity in Scandinavia at this point is Saint Olaf. The people that deposed Olaf quickly came to regret it when they all of a sudden seized that this this enormous statues that he uh, achieves in his death, and it doesn't help that Canute instates his son to rule Norway, and he turns out to be grossly incompetent. At this point also we see Norwegian nationalism rise, and we see people calling for descendants of Olaf to come in, and shortly before Canute the Great dies in 1035, he sees Norway slipping away from him as the Norwegians are bringing in Olaf's son Magnus to be the new ruler of Norway, and from here on a new line of Christian kings are established, the descendant of Saint Olaf. Many people see the Battle of Stiklestein in 1030 as the end of the Viking Age, others say 1066. We will keep going until at least 1066 as we are now preparing for the very last part of this rather epic series on the Viking Age 
Uh, we also have not had time to tackle the dramatic voyages to Vinland, probably, that is Canada, and the settlement on Greenland, and how Harold Hardrother, the last Viking, we might call him, came to power. Uh, so we will wrap everything up in one last episode, but just a few more words on Christianity. Because after St. Olaf, there is basically never ever going to be a way back for the old Norse mythology. And by the turn of the century, at 1100 AD, we see almost all Christian graves. There are no, there are no old Norse grave, graves anymore. No burial mounds with grave goods. People are not believing in Valhalla. And at this point, it's not only the elite that are pushing Christianity, it is likely that this is what most people actually believe in. The famous pagan shrine or temple at Uppsala in Sweden, it survives all the way up to the 1080s when it is destroyed by a then Swedish Christian king. And one of the true reasons that the Viking area is about to end is that Norway, Sweden and Denmark are now proper Christian monarchies like many European states. So that means narrating other Christian countries and taking Christian slaves is a no-go. St. Olaf's Cathedral in Nidaros will soon become a place pilgrims will travel to from all over Europe in order to be healed for their ailments and the once young, burly, blonde, barrow-chested, sword-wheeling Viking will go into European history as a holy man. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, we have one episode left of the series on the Viking Age. After that, we will return to much more modern history. If you want to support this podcast, please do so by telling your friends or posting something nice in social media, or even better, post a review on wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, or whatnot. I'm really happy to see that uh, you are quite a few game changers out there, people that are listening to just about every episode, which is really makes me really grateful. Um, so yeah, I just want to say thank you. And whatever sort of feedback you have, I'm very grateful for it. I'm on social media, occasionally at least, so you can try to find me there. And yeah, until next time. Cheers.